theme I want you to remember over and over again. We, we never want to get myopic. We never want to get tunnel vision and focus here at Christ Fellowship. We have our eyes on the nations. I want to turn your attention backwards for a moment to the year 2014. Back in, and some of you here, actually many of you, were not even attending Christ Fellowship at the time. And so this will give you a little bit of a history. Back in 2014, we began a process of, of strategic planning. And all of us who were involved in that process were super, super excited. And in the midst of that strategic planning, we ended up walking through some very choppy water. And we eventually reached the shore with some concrete goals and objectives. But at one point, at one point, some of us, myself included, deep down didn't really know if we were going to pull off these goals and objectives. We just couldn't seem to get out of the mud. We couldn't get the, the nose of the plane. It wouldn't pull up into the air. And so we were beat down, we were dejected, we were bruised. And if I'm super honest with you, um, I, I was at a, a low point in my life. But we continued to move forward as an elder council, as a church family, and we trusted the Lord. And so between 2014 and now, on December 1st, 2019, I believe that God was at work on each one of us, even those of you who were not even attending here at Christ Fellowship, and he has brought us to this point. And guess what? God is doing something special at Christ Fellowship. This is a theme that keeps coming up in our elder council meetings. Someone will say, I was talking to Mrs. So-and-so. I was talking to Mr. So-and-so. I was talking to one of the young people. And they, they're all saying the same thing. Something is different. Something's happening. God is at work. We sense the enthusiasm. We sense the excitement. That is the resounding theme that we're hearing as a church family. This is something very interesting I want to share, that it was just over a year ago. On November 26, 2018, that I called a, a special meeting. It was a special meeting with the members of the Elder Council. And at that meeting, we met over, we normally meet in the chapel, but for this meeting, for whatever reason, I can't remember why, we met over in the fellowship hall. And I addressed the Elder Council. And at that time... I shared, it was a rather lengthy meeting, I'm going to make it very short for our purposes today, but I shared four components of what, of what I referred to then and what I refer to this morning as a celebrated vision. And in a very short period of time, I want to sum up the four components of that celebrated vision. Number one, theology is commended. I don't know if anything could make me happier than to hear that a church family commends theology. Now, we have worked hard over the years to, to foster a culture that is purposefully theological. That's really shorthand for encouraging a culture that is intentionally gospel-centered. That's shorthand for encouraging and fostering a community here at Christ Fellowship that is Christ-centered. 
And so day by day, moment by moment, this is becoming a reality as men and women, and not just men and women, but also boys and girls and teenagers are putting their trust in Christ and they're going after God. They're finding delight in following the Lord Jesus Christ. Theology is commended. And God is so gracious, isn't he not? This morning, as I'm preparing for two weeks down the road for a sermon, I've referred to Martin Lloyd-Jones as my friend, the friend that I never had a chance to meet. In heaven, we will all have a chance to meet him if you were a Christian. Here's what he says about the theological matter that I'm addressing now. He says, ah, but you say, theology will not appeal to people. Now, keep in mind, he wrote these words in 1970. Would you do me a favor? Raise your hand if you've ever heard anything similar to the notion that theology won't appeal to people. Yeah, I, I hear it all the time. Pastor Dave, if you emphasize theology, people will not come. You will drive them away. That's exactly what Lloyd-Jones is addressing This theology will not appeal to people. They are not interested in theology. And here's his response. The answer is, they must become interested in theology if they are to become Christians. They must hear the truth and they must believe it. Men have never been interested in theology and never will be until the Holy Spirit deals with them. Here's my response to that. If you're here this morning, I I promise most of this will be just touching and encouraging and motivational for you. But if you're not interested in theology this morning, the Holy Spirit will deal with you. He really will. And that's exciting. So he goes on. Our business is to preach the truth to them, trusting to the Holy Spirit to open their eyes and their understanding and to apply it to them with power. That's exactly what's happening at Christ Fellowship. I I look around, I I see it in your eyes. I, I see it in your actions. I see it in your attitudes. Theology is commended. Number two. As I addressed the board, I shared this second matter, and it's an important one to me, and that is that Reformed theology in particular is expected. Above all, we at Christ Fellowship want to be a church that, that prizes, treasures the glory of God. We prioritize the glory of God in everything we do. And so the glory of God becomes a a kind of a theological rebar that informs the infrastructure of the Christian life. And so we rejoice in the glory of God and we strive to reflect the glory of God at Christ Fellowship. We ask this, when someone wants to start a new ministry, we ask, first of all, does it help accomplish the mission of the church, which I'll address in a moment. The next question would be, does it help to show that we value the glory of God Above all things, there are some things that may be good and valuable, but if it doesn't promote the glory of God, that's something for another time and another place and another organization. Number three, biblical eldership is delighted in. Some of you may remember seven, eight years ago, we had a group of men that we called the Ministry Council. Now, the Ministry Council was a group of biblically qualified elders and deacons, but as you look back, 
there was never any differentiation between who is an elder and who is a deacon. And what we learned is that when you put deacons and elders in the same room doing the, having the same responsibilities, all that does is it lends to confusion and frustration for those deacons who are wired to be deacons being placed in an elder kind of a role. And then the reverse is true for an elder being placed in a, in a deacon role as well. So biblical eldership is delighted in now we have a, a council of elders and also a group of biblically qualified deacons. And so I have seen men of God, both elders and deacons, grow deeply in the soil of God's grace and grow in their love for the flock. How many of you have seen the, the love of the elders manifested towards you in some kind of practical way? It's an exciting thing. And so I've also seen the flip side. I've seen the body of Christ grow likewise in their love for the elders as well as the deacons. Number four, and finally, our church is marked by unity. A year ago, when I addressed the board, I was growing increasingly encouraged by the signs of unity in our church family. It hasn't always been that way. A year later, speaking of today, it's only better. Why? Because we're unified around the truth. We are unified around the gospel. We are unified, unified around the word of God. We are unified with one another. Do you remember the days when there are lots of cliques in Christ Fellowship? You know where those cliques are? They must be in the cloud because they're not here. And I'd say let's, let's not even access that, those cliques in the cloud, because those days are over as well. We are a church that is unified. The psalmist says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Many of you have heard me in my, my love for promoting reformation and revival. Never just reformation, not just a reformation of truth, but a revival that starts in the heart as well. So then I come across these words by John MacArthur that just touched me. And I think it strikes at the core of what we're trying to accomplish here at Christ Fellowship. Dr. MacArthur says, God's people need to bring an end to foolish dalliances with worldliness and getting serious about dealing with sin in their midst. That's the kind of reformation the Lord calls for. One that emphasizes a committed love for Christ, the exclusion of worldly compromise, the consistent confrontation of sin, and a plea, a serious plea for sound theology and personal holiness. End quote. I know that you realize that over the years we have stumbled along the way. The elders have stumbled. Perhaps you have stumbled. We have struggled along the way. But our mission has never wavered, has it? It has never wavered. Our mission, to remind you, is simply to help people become fully devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our vision has also remained constant. The vision that, that was surfaced out of our, our strategic planning time several years ago is just this. Our vision is to be a high-commitment, high-grace family of Christ followers who strive to live gospel-driven and God-centered lives, equipped to reach our community and the nations 
with the saving message of the gospel. When I addressed the elders just over a year ago, I also encouraged them to begin looking forward and to begin to accomplish some concrete goals and objectives. And some of those goals included, and this is just a short list, increasing our attention on new members. We'll hear more about that in 2020. This is one that I just have to chuckle at, and some of you will know the joke. Others of you don't need to know the joke because it's painful. Installing Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah, some of you don't know why that's funny. We would have meeting after meeting after meeting. How's it going with the Wi-Fi? Oh, well, oh, well, let's, pay, let's table it. How many years, guys, did we table the Wi-Fi? Oh, about four, right? And I, I, as, I, as I reviewed my remarks this morning, I got to thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss someone. And so if I miss you, I apologize. But were it not for Todd White and Aaron Holder and Chad Honey, those are the three that immediately popped on my mind. I might be missing some others, but those men were instrumental at helping us with Wi-Fi. And I can say from a pastoral perspective, Chad, Aaron, Todd, uh, that's called saving pastoral bacon. It is so helpful. There is a day when I would have to walk from one end of the church to the other to get connected. And then I'd walk back and then I'd say, oh, I need to print something. And I have to walk back. And by the way, that's why I wear a Fitbit because I figure if I'm going to walk, I'm going to get credit for something, right? <laughs> Those days are over. And it doesn't just benefit me. It benefits all of you who have a phone or an iPad or a Kindle or you want to get in line to access Logos or something else, but not for Surfing during the sermon. Just a clarification. So installing Wi-Fi is a goal that has been a massive accomplishment. Recruiting and training new ministry leaders. I can think back a year ago now. We have people that were not involved in ministry a year ago, and they are now. They are trained, and they are, as I put it, red hot and rolling. They, I mean, it's so exciting to see people involved in jam and youth ministry and adult ministry and helping around the facilities. Just a massive improvement. Also, speaking of facilities, we have been renovating existing facilities and developing a master plan for the future. Again, Aaron, w without Aaron Holder and his team of people, there's no way we would have pulled this off. And so I want to thank Aaron from the bottom of my heart for all that you have done. That also includes the completion of uh, my study. Uh, that might not sound like a very big deal to you, but it, it has been such a blessing to have this new study to be downstairs. And there's so many benefits um, for that. So thank you so much. So those are just a few of the goals that have been met. And we look forward to seeing more progress in 2020. Chris will share more about that with you in a moment. But I want to stop and draw your attention to the Elder Council one more minute. There are some words that describe the elders here at Christ Fellowship that I think would be appropriate to share, and really, as a senior pastor, and also from the bottom of my heart. These are men of action. The elders are men of action. These are men who are committed from the bottom of their hearts to accomplishing the mission and fulfilling the vision that I have shared. These are men of integrity. I want you to know that each one of your elders, there are nine of them, 
Each one of your elders have rolled up their sleeves. They have been on their knees, and they take their role as elders at Christ Fellowship very, very seriously. And so I am proud of each and every one of them for standing strong, especially during the seasons of challenge and adversity. And I was not planning on making uh, this comment, but I want to thank each of the elders for standing beside me during those very difficult days. Some of you are not seated as elders anymore. You are, you are to be congratulated and thanked just as much as those who are now seated as elders. Galen, I think of uh, as at the top of the list, is one who is not seated as of today as an elder. I view you as an elder, Galen. You will always be an elder in my eyes. And Galen, you, you are a man who stood by me and continues to stand by me. So I, I value your friendship and your camaraderie very much. One of the most important goals that we have been most recently focused on is making preparations to find and hire, drum roll. Oh, the drums are gone. They're coming back later when we find a drummer. When we find and hire an executive pastor. Let me just let that sit for a minute. Anyone excited about bringing on an executive pastor? Woohoo! I am. <laughs> because let me just put it out there. I need help I, in more ways than one. Yeah, not just, not just psychologically, but other things that I need help with. We believe that the time has come to move forward with this important step. And I want to take just a moment and outline how an executive pastor will help us as a church family and also help me personally. This is just a short list. Number one, to provide oversight and leadership to the ministry action teams. Just to be very frank, I don't have the time to, um, nor the energy to devote enough attention to helping equip uh, the ministry action teams. I need to focus more on uh, preparing to preach and develop leaders. Secondly, an executive pastor will help to mobilize an army of godly and gifted people who have a heart for shepherding the flock and ministering to the needs of people. He will, he will provide an administrative oversight to the ministries of Christ Fellowship. Uh, the, the picture I have in my mind is to be one of the captains of the ship to make sure that everything's running smoothly at an administrative level. Fourth is to mobilize a systematic process for engaging members for the work of the ministry. Some of you who are newer at Christ Fellowship, you just kind of slipped in and you figured out how it works. And God bless you and we're thankful to God for you. But others of you may be here and you're just like, I haven't quite figured out how do I get involved in youth ministry? How do I get involved in, in uh, helping with uh, jam. How do I get involved at some different level? This man will help with that process. And then also, as I've already mentioned, the executive pastor will help me immensely. And so hire an executive pastor with administrative gifts will help to free me up to focus more attention on preaching, teaching, and leadership development. To conclude, I have a, a subtitle in my remarks, and I'll just read it to you. Moving forward joyfully and obediently. Let me just say that to say that the future of Christ Fellowship is bright is a massive understatement. We, I believe, have momentum. We have an eager flock. We have a hungry flock. We have an obedient flock. And our main objective, as I've already said, is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. 
as we move forward joyfully and obediently, we will face obstacles. We will face setbacks. We will face trials and persecution, both from within and from without. But we will continue to move forward, will we not? Nehemiah, you will recall, faced a similar challenge with the building of the wall, but he boldly pursued God's call on his life. Nehemiah 4.14 says, And I looked and I arose and I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. I love Nehemiah. May we be a generation of, of people who can be likened to Nehemiah. And so Christ Fellowship, I believe, stands at a very important crossroads. We have come to a place of what some refer to as a strategic inflection point. We have a celebrated vision before us. And the great theologian, I don't know if you've ever read any of his books, the great theologian Russell Wilson recently said something that just caught me off guard. It was about a year ago. He said this after a game, and it, it just hit me between the eyes. He said this, quote, Either look forward to the moment or fear, close quote. Either look forward to the moment or fear. I want to challenge you here as members and attenders at Christ Fellowship to cast your fear aside, and that includes me as well, and to look forward to the future that is filled with great anticipation and great joy. May we, as God's people, be good stewards of the time he has given us, the talents he has granted us, and the treasures he has also graciously given us, both individually and corporately. And may we move closer to achieving the grand mission to help people become fully devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to pray for Chris as he comes forward that God would help him with his remarks. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for my brother Chris. Thank you for his friendship and uh, all of the gifts that you have uh, given him. Lord, he is a, a vital part of our team, a vital part of the elder council. And as he shares a bit more, some of the nuts and the bolts of the vision that you have set before us, would you uh, guide his words? Would you encourage the church family with his words? And may his comments just help us to see with, with crystal clear focus where you intend for this church family to go. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Thanks, Pastor Dave. Uh, we could stop right there. I think Pastor Dave has done a good enough job already laying things out, but uh, we've got a few more things we'd like to expand on a little bit and uh, discuss with everyone as we look forward to uh, 2020. And I'll bring a few things to your attention more on a practical level, talking about things we're looking at and discussing. And hopefully uh, you guys stick with me and I don't uh, blow your socks off too much. And you might wonder what the elders do talk about. You probably should wonder that anyway. Um, but we've been discussing many things over the last little while. And um, Pastor Dave is entirely correct when he says, are the elders excited about this? Absolutely. It's, it's a refreshing thing to look forward and to 
many times I'll say yeah, put ministry in the offense instead of on the defense and, and be thinking ahead, and that is, that is a true blessing. Um, Pastor Dave, again, is absolutely correct when he says we're at a, as he says, a strategic infection, sorry, inflection point. <laughs> this is very true. I believe the question before us right at the moment is uh, basically God has been blessing us mightily over the last while. For a number of years now, we've been tremendously blessed. I do believe that comes with a challenge, and the challenge is, what are you going to do with that? God has blessed us. God does not bless us for nothing. He asks us to do something with those blessings he gives us. And the, the simple truth of it is, why are we here? Well, we're called to make more disciples of Jesus Christ, which coincidentally is our mission statement. Uh, so the question is, what do we do with these blessings? What does that look like in 2020? Well, I'm excited. We have a lot to look forward to. Uh, there are many blessings we can look at. Our mats are one of them. You want an exciting thing to, to take a look at. There's, there's a number of mats, and for the sake of time, just simply can't go through all the activities going on there and the amount of people serving. Ken's going to elaborate a bit on that as well. But the mats are serving well. They're engaged. Things are happening on each level there, and it's, it's very exciting to look at. Uh, Pastor Dave also mentioned another thing that I don't really want to skate past, and he, he used the words, we have an obedient congregation. I think this is a, a significant piece of the blessings we're enjoying. You may have heard over the past few years we've talked about the joyful obedience journey. And that's been in front of us for probably three, four, five years now. And uh, our finance team has put that in front of us. And um, they've talked about the joyful obedience journey. I truly believe some of the joy we're experiencing is due to the obedience we've been, uh, we've been observing in those past few years. So the joyful obedience journey is not an insignificant piece of this puzzle. Um, if, if we look at the numbers in our congregation, just real briefly, um, our congregation is bucking a trend in the United States today that is, is remarkable to watch. Uh, when, when it comes to the theology surrounding our finances and how we handle them and what the Bible asks us to do, a lot of churches go one direction or another. One is they don't dare talk about it. They won't talk about finances. The other side is to turn it into health and wealth. You know, Well, if you want to do well, you'll give money, and God's going to bless you with that Maserati you've been waiting for. Um, I'd like to believe that, but I don't think that's biblically correct. So um, I think uh, we may not have everything figured out, um, but I do firmly believe we are experiencing some of the joy that comes with the obedience to God's word. Um, so God has entrusted us with much. What do we do with it? Um, there are many ministries and objectives for 2020. Uh, we will not be able to cover them all, but I'm excited to bring two of these things uh, primarily to your attention as we talk today. Uh, first of all, Pastor Dave already mentioned, I don't think I'd, I can, I could probably chop out a lot of things I've got here as far as that goes, but Pastor Dave mentions, uh, the board has, has talked about this and they have approved the, the, or given the approval to begin the process of looking for an executive pastor. And, and as Pastor Dave mentioned, these are, these are exciting things. One of, one of the biggest things in, on, on his, I happen to see Pastor Dave note, notes, and uh, the heading of that section was called Staffing for Growth. And that's an important thing. If we're going to hire somebody, what is the objective in hiring that person? It's for growth, and it's to facilitate growth. It's to facilitate ministry and, and make ministry more efficient. One thing as elders we constantly see, and, and again, this is probably the praise the Aaron Holder uh, day as well, but one thing we constantly get is this push of, we, got, we want to do this, we want to do that, we want to do this, we want to do that. And providing effective leadership to that without having a consistent presence here in the building, so to speak, is very difficult, and it, it, 
it introduces inefficiencies to ministries that can be eliminated should we hire someone for that. Um, Pastor Dave mentions he needs help. If you can picture an executive pastor, uh, he's like Pastor Dave's arms and legs. Pastor Dave needs bigger arms and legs. I mean, well, figuratively speaking, too. But <laughs> we need him to bulk up a little bit. But um, we'll work on that. So, but uh, we bring in we bring in an executive pastor. He's got uh, more arms and legs. Another set of hands on the wheel. If you think of an airplane with a co-pilot, there's two wheels in there. Why? Sometimes somebody has to grab the second set of wheels and, and pull on that thing to, to fly it properly. So he needs more help with that. The mats will benefit from this. And not only that, as we grow, as we look to grow more, this person will help us and assist us in providing both direction, but also in increasing that staff in different areas that are also uh, there are many needs. So we're looking for that person to help. And as that process unfolds, we're committed to providing updates on a regular basis. So that's a, that's a little bit more on the, uh, what do you call it, uh, executive pastor. Secondly, another exciting objective, uh, this is kind of fun to think about, and you'll have to stick with me a little bit because we can get pie in the sky here real quick. But we need to get the ball rolling on a much-needed upgrade and update and uh, remodel or renovation of our current facilities. And again, um, we talk about getting the ball rolling. Some of this has already been done. You've seen Aaron and his team working hard in many areas of the church, and we'd be remiss not to look at that. You look at our nursery, uh, Pastor Dave's office, the study, the foyer out back, uh, Wi-Fi. Pastor Dave brought up Wi-Fi, which is kind of funny. Uh, There's things like audiovisual things, the fellowship hall, the TVs around the the building and stuff like that have also been installed, and a lot of painting's been done. There's a lot of work that's happened already, and that's not to say that, that that gets minimized. Like anything else, you know, the more Aaron does, the more his team digs into, uh, you've probably all experienced this at home. You start fixing something. <laughs> and what happens? You know, you started fixing a dishwasher, and before that, before you know it, you got a new bathroom. It, uh, it just builds on itself. And, and as we look, there's more and more things that need repair. So the time has come to take this to a new level. And it is our goal to get these wheels moving in 2020. We've spoken a lot with our mats. There's a lot more conversation to be had. And one thing you may have noticed as well, uh, Steve might comment on this, but we have a ministry-driven budget. We also we would like to pursue the same approach with our facility, to have a ministry-driven facility as well. And as we update it, we hope to uh, use that to prioritize things as well. Many thoughts have already hit the table, so these discussions have been taking place. And um, I'd ask you to dream with me a little bit. So these are thoughts, Okay. Don't walk out of here thinking, oh, they're doing this and that. We're parking a D12 in the building on next Sunday and worshiping in the gym. That'd be fun. I mean, uh, to drive a bulldozer in here, but um, I don't think that's the proper approach. Um, Again, our highest priority is Sunday service. If you can imagine, you take that foyer out back, and there's a lot back there, of course. Currently, we have offices and stuff like that. But if basically we think about opening all that up, putting a new entrance there, moving the offices over, we've started some of that already, um, move the office equipment over there, maybe the balcony goes or the second floor goes and it all gets opened up. You've got glass on the front and it's wide open. Maybe we have a mezzanine back there that you can sit on and enjoy fellowship. We have an increased space back there for um, fellowship and welcome as you walk in. Perhaps a coffee shop has been mentioned. As you can see, this gets big real quick. Our prayer mats weighed in. Jerry Toon has done a great job saying, are we a church of prayer? We should have a prayer room, front and center, for that very reason. And uh, there's other things. Our children's wing, um, 
Right now, our children have been kind of scattered due to some of the stuff we've done. But what if we were to take our children, and as you go into the chapel over there, turn that all over here into our children's wing. Um, we have a security team that's weighed in on this. Uh, we need to be able to secure our, where, the areas where our children are at. But say we check in over here, and all of this along here turns into a children's wing, and back here behind us where we provide our education and, and the, the area for the children and to uh, hang out and have a good time and learn more. Um, given the ability to check in properly, uh, providing that security that we could lock down the building if we have to should something happen. Unfortunately, in today's day and age, these things have to be thought about. So we have a security team that is bringing those ideas forward on a regular basis at this point. Our bathrooms uh, need updating. They need to be brought up to code. Handicap access is a big thing. Uh, right now, we're, we're way behind in that uh, regard as well. And then the sanctuary. I mean, this sanctuary has served us well. Um, but like anything else, it's been here, as far as I can tell, over 40 years. That includes the floor coverings. It's been well taken care of. Those pews you're sitting on, they've served us well. Uh, there are areas in those pews that people like me have to avoid. Um, <laughs> I thought about demonstrating that, but I'm not going to bother. It'd be quite something to crack a pew in half, but... Um, <laughs> But yes, the pews, you know, they are getting tired. We need to talk about replacing the seating in here, the floor coverings, and updating the whole thing. There's, there's many things that we could do. Our audiovisual um, lighting and stuff like that needs some work. The stage here, uh, we've talked about expanding it, making it bigger, and, and putting different backdrops on it uh, that, that um, will enhance our worship and, uh, and do that as well. And imagine again, say the balcony is no longer there. The bleacher creatures might have to go uh, right now the hearing is are <laughs> a little worried about it, but yeah uh, so there are many different things if you really want to get out there um, this is why Ken and I are probably not allowed to enter those discussions very often but we're talking about what if we blow this wall out put some garage doors in and cover that that uh, courtyard out there and we could have outdoor services in the summer you know and do that kind of thing and then you know to really get things going I think Pastor Dave needs a a pulpit that comes out of the floor and smoke and uh, lasers and you know, <laughs> too far <laughs> sorry <laughs> I just think it's a great picture imagine a bulked up pastor Dave you know <laughs> <laughs> this is why big mouths are not given microphones <laughs> anyway you get the picture we can go on and on and on it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun to talk about a lot of things to, to dream about and uh, we have leaned very heavily, again, on Aaron and our facilities team and uh, the other mats as well. But this is going to take a little more than that. And uh, one thing we're looking at doing, we've talked to a few contractors. We do need to get an architect into the picture to give us some direction. Otherwise, people like Ken and I will make a big mess, and we need that not to happen. So um, there is much more. Obviously, there's uh, infrastructure things that need to be considered as well as time goes on. And several of you by this, at this point might rightly be thinking, I've lost my mind and the elders are kind of out there. That's not the case. Um, you might, many of you are probably going, how does that all get funded? You know, how do you guys think this is going to happen? This is where I get to check out and call on Steve and uh, let him clean this up and, and uh, tell you about where, where we see this going. The exciting thing, we have a finance team as well. And that group has been working really hard. And that group has really put the rubber to the road in a lot of this discussion where many times we're going, well, that's, that's not possible. And guys like Steve and his team and Tim Hanawell, our, our treasurer, along with Galen in the background and others as well, 
have weighed in on this and said, you know, there's a way we can pull this stuff off. And there's, there's a vision there in some direction as well. I'll let Steve elaborate on that uh, as he comes up. And he has some things to share with you as well. So I'll close with prayer and I'll pray for Steve as he comes up and uh, we'll move on. Father, we thank you for the, the exciting things we can look forward to in 2020. Lord, I'd like to pray for Steve as he comes up. We thank you for his work, the finance team, the things they've done. We're excited to hear how uh, 2020 is going to shape up and the many different uh, things that we see that we want to do and how the, the blessings you've given us can be used as we move forward into the coming year. Lord, I pray for Steve. Give him strength. Give him words. I thank you for him and his, the blessing is to our fellowship and his friendship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Steve. I guess one of the benefits of going third is that I get to regurgitate everything that's been said and try and elaborate. But uh, you're going to hear a lot of repeat on what I got to say on what's already been presented. But uh, uh, it's exciting to be able to present the vision from a from a financial perspective. Uh, uh, first thing we need to do is, is uh, that I want to do is, is recognize you all and your obedience. Uh, the joyful obedience journey has been. Uh, has been mentioned in the trainings in that uh, we couldn't be where we are today without obedient, uh, faithful givers for that. Uh, and it's, it's all to the glory of God for moving in, in our people. Um, we've been at a time when that wasn't always the case. The churches around the country are seeing that that's not the case. Um, Chris mentioned we're bucking a trend, um, you know, and, and you'll, you see a lot of the times in churches that uh, 80% of what gets done is done financially by 20, maybe less than that percent of the congregation. We are, uh, we are, we've flipped that number to where we have more than 80% faithful givers. And so that is a, a, a blessing that we are receiving as, as leaders trying to figure out how to do ministry here. And so I want to thank you for responding to God working in your hearts uh, and, and not to minimize the fact that this is the Holy Spirit working in Christ fellowship. And so I want to start with that. But uh, uh, the amount of opportunity that we have in front of us um, is all because of, of that and the freeing of the elders um, to, to, and to be able to direct the mats and to administer the church uh, with finances not being a roadblock is huge for us. Um, you know, we, we talk about where we were in the last few years, um, and we are significantly lower in numbers, but in that time, we're, we're a church of 50-plus years, and we've never been debt-free until, what, a year and a half ago? Uh, and so we, uh, with less people, we paid off the debt, and we came debt-free. Everything we have here is owned by Christ Fellowship. We don't have any liens, no obligations to anybody. Uh, it's, it's, it's ours, and we are now trying to do what we can to make this a perfect house for God. Uh, there's been 50 years of neglect and, and lack of maintenance uh, and, and, and vision on where we're going. With, without the vision, you just do what you need on a daily basis. And so we, we are debt-free, and we have some an intentionality in what we're doing. Um, 
you can see we've also, in the last year, uh, year and a half, two years, we've updated the foyer. We've carpeted all the way around. We've fixed the siding and painted the exterior. Uh, all this stuff, because we don't have that debt hanging over us, we're able to do that. Because we have faithful giving, we're meeting budgets, and we're not exceeding and, 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 and doing anything that is spending for the sake of spending, which we've seen in the past, perhaps. Um, we, we've, we've done a lot, and we're continuing to do a lot. We anticipate doing a lot uh, with continued blessing from you. Um, there's, I was looking in the record books here, and we've in the past we've had 200 plus at an 8 o'clock service, another 190 at a nine, at a 11 o'clock service, uh, and maybe a $500,000 budget for the year. And we held paychecks because we couldn't make payments. Our operations budget wasn't being met, and so we were not being faithful as leaders back in the day, and, and it was not being done right. And so now we have. A comparable budget you know we were looking at close to four hundred thousand dollars in 2019 um, and uh, we may not we knew that from the elders perspective that that was a stretch we would be uh, stretching to make that and and, and right now outside of any year-end giving we're going to be probably short of that goal but that's okay it's okay we 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 knew where we needed where we wanted to be um, and that we always said that as a ministry-driven budget, maybe some ministries had to be pulled back because of dollars, but I haven't seen that. Looking at our budget, what we spent year-to-date on mats, uh, we haven't held back on anything. Uh, and so that's, that's been a big, big blessing and a, and a joy for us. Um, this year, uh, probably should have got approval for this, but... <laughs> You know, we, we started out the year in our checkbook with about twenty four k twenty four thousand dollars in our checkbook, which is phenomenal. You know, there have been times when we haven't had enough to make a light payment. Um, but as we sit right now, we have forty plus thousand dollars in our checking account, um, and that's all because of faithfulness and and because of leadership not spending for the sake of spending. This year. Uh, our, our, our treasurers and, and, and Galen and Tim and uh, all the help there, we were doing an audit, and we found that we missed in payroll, and we had to go back and pay this uh, to the tune of about $24,000. Years past, this has been an impossible hurdle to overcome. We've paid that. We still have $20,000 more at the end of the year in our budget than we ever had or that we started the year with. And so, so that, that's, it's incredible to see God moving in his people. And so I thank you for that. Um, you know, the, the unapologetic preaching and teaching from the JOJ and from the pulpit and, and even down into our, to our, our uh, Veritas classes, uh, it's become just ingrained it's part of our our culture and there's some places where you've you've heard that to talk of finances is going to run people away people don't want to hear always talking about money god never complained about trying to talk about money jesus talked about money money is a major it's the way that we have to do ministry and so that's the way god chose to make it and we have to abide by that as leaders um, but we're seeing this down into our jam kids are being taught and they're, they're being taught the blessing of selfless giving, and, 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 and they've responded well, too. I mean, these are, these are elementary kids that 
have taken and worked hard at earning coins. They earn, earn coins for memory verses, for participation, bringing a Bible, uh, being involved. And they've, instead of taking and going to the tray of, of trinkets or candies or, or toys or treats, they've chosen to pool their money and offer it to, to help Dave in his trip to Belarus. They raised $500. These are our elementary kids who are being taught this at this young age. Imagine the blessing of them in the next generation as they go forward. It's a foregone conclusion that we give to God's kingdom. What a blessing that is and a legacy that Christ Fellowship can provide going forward. Uh, I, moving to the budget, uh, you guys, hopefully everybody received, or at least per family received a copy of the 2020 budget um, and that's all broken down by the different ministries the ministry action teams the operations payroll utilities all included in there for our year-end budget um, this year the 2020 budget as we looked at 2019 and didn't make our forecasted goal and we know that we are seeing an obedient family we we had to realize that you know, the, the stretch may not be there. So we pulled $10,000 off of the, uh, the budget. Um, and that meets with our, our, our giving reality of where we are right now with the numbers we have. And so uh, we feel that where we're at is a, is a solid number. Um, there was some work that we had to manipulate to get there a little bit. Um, but uh, we were fortunate that uh, my team, Matt team, I want to recognize Todd and... and uh, Tyson Skeenstro, Laura Veldman, and, and, and Dave Benner, um, as we put this together, we, we, got this, we were tasked with getting the budget in early so that the elders had a chance to really work with this. Um, and we had it September, late August, early September. Um, and so that's usually we're getting it about December 32nd, right? Uh, <laughs> asking for forgiveness as we move into January to approve the next year's budget. Um, but this year we were able to get it done. Uh, and so that's given the elders plenty of time to work through and, and, and see what, uh, what we can do. And uh, we're talking, you've heard the talk of the, 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 associate, the executive pastor. And well, if we're short on budget this year, how are we going to get there next year? Uh, and working with it and having the time that we did with the budget, the, the forecast, the budget you have includes three-quarters of a year of salary for an executive pastor. So it's in there. Um, and uh, with that, um, we're excited. Uh, we, we've probably shot a little bit high in saying that we could find somebody in, a, in the Q1 of 2020. We know that these research committees could last, you know, eight months to a year and a half, maybe longer to find the right person. Uh, God has that person for us, and, and we know, but we, we want to be available and ready for whoever God brings to us. It may be the first week of the church committee that God says, this is your person. And so we, we, we have the opportunity to, to be able to fund that this year. Um, one thing I would like to say that this meeting here is not necessarily a conversation about the budget. We always present these out, um, and then we have two weeks before we can vote next week after the service, uh, probably in the chapel or in the fellowship hall, depending on where we got the best seating, um, we can have a Q&A, as we always do. So you have questions, you take this home, you give you a week to, to review that, um, and, uh, and then we can, we can look at that for the making adjustments if we need, or we can explain why we have what we have there, and then follow that up the next week with a vote. 
So as we move forward with our 2020 projects budget, uh, you've heard a lot of the things that we would love to see done. Our, literally, the planning has been going on for the last three years, probably, and trying to get where we are. You, you, you've heard the term that we're men of action. We're men of slow action, it may seem, from your side. We don't seem to get stuff done when it takes four years to get Wi-Fi. Uh, but a lot of this has been founding, building a foundation from which we can, we can catapult from and move forward. Um, we, we, we've had... Uh, uh, architect come through and just measure out the facility and see what can be done. But there's so much more than just that needs to be done. But we've had, we had them look at it and gave us some ideas of that we could do so that we're not walking blindly into the night of, uh, uh, of the future and, and not knowing where we're going. Um, but it's a big project. When you look at 50 years, it hasn't been done. I know uh, Aaron can say that he's seen 49 of the years already and tried to work on them all at one week. But there, there's so many things that we, we do, and we're trying to be fiscally responsible from a leadership and, and not overspend because it's, it's all there to be able to overspend. And so how do we fund renovating something like this? Uh, some of you, most of you may know, some of you may not, that the house next door to us and the two lots behind it, we own. And the elders have discussed and, and would like to bring to the congregation the, the opportunity to be able to sell that property. Uh, real estate right now is probably the highest it's ever been in the time we can take advantage of uh, an asset that we paid for and really never have done anything with. Um, and we'd like to be able to liquidate that and use that funding as a seed for many different projects. We're not going to just take and because we could spend it all in here. You know, we expect to get th between three and four hundred thousand dollars, depending on how we break up the property over there. Um, that's a great base for us to work from uh, as we start moving on projects. Um, and so, you've heard uh, in here, we've our strategic plan made Sunday service our priority. This has to be our our priority. Sunday worship, uh, everything that happens here on Sunday, is our priority. And and we've we've had a, uh, what we called our ministry excellence team and they try and look at everything that goes on and how do we refine and better and make this a perfect and excellent service because God is perfect and excellent and he deserves nothing less and so what can we do to make this place whether it be to, to paint the steel girders I think is what we were talking about right all steel and, and and smoke and whatever I don't think Chris I think I like the idea of him coming down out of the ceiling versus coming up through the stage but but, and some, some doo-wop backup singers behind him. Uh, no, that, but if we got the volunteers, that doesn't cost us anything, right? But so, you know, be on the lookout for that sign-up. Um, you know, in here, you, you heard the carpet, the pews, um, audio-visual. Uh, you know, we, we've been talking of, uh, of the pews and, and changing those to chairs. Why would we want to do that? The pews are, you know, they're, they're, this is church. Um, as we looked at the, the, the pricing of that, uh, just doing some research on what we've between a couple different vendors. You're looking at anywhere from 12 foot section of uh, of APU, ranging between 720 to 900 dollars per 12 foot section. We've got 28 row, 28 sets of pews here, and they're all that are part of 20 feet. So you see where we're at with the dollars. The chairs give us uh, some expandability. We can we don't have to necessarily put in 400 capacity seating 
right up front. Uh, we, can, we can modularize this. They're, they become more flexible. They give us more flexibility in the, in the area, uh, in the sanctuary, for what happens with a stage modification. It gives us a little bit more uh, ability to move and change it, open this up if we need it for another event. Um, and so uh, cost-wise, you're looking at anywhere, if we've seen it as low as 35 to up to $60 per seat, uh, which is about two-thirds of the cost or less of replacing with, with pews. And so, again, to, to be uh, diligent in our investigations and, and our research, you know, we're, we're looking at what is our most, uh, the proper way to, 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 to fulfill this, this need. Um, you know, audio-visual, we have opportunities now where technology is allowing, uh, you know, possibilities of cameras and, and more monitors and, and to better reproduce the, the sermons that are, that are played back on, on the website, um, to include with that PowerPoints and, and, and notes and different things like that. We could also, you know, there's talk of maybe even a simulcast of the, of the sermon um, that is opportunity today with technology that we've never had, but we need to get the technology. Um, but with that is, you know, uh, funding for security upgrades, the moving the offices, the moving the children's wing over here. Uh, all of that's going to be based on the seed money that we can get from the sale of the properties. Um, we're not going to look at making that and exhausting that money on one project. We want to, we want to get everybody involved. Everybody has a stake in how we present and move forward here. Um, the goal is to put the money there and build up the rest through your support. And we can, we can present the dollars and how much we're looking at and uh, have our running totals and, and get the, get the buy-in and the, and the support from you before we move forward so we're not out there wildly spending money. This is something that uh, you guys are uh, all part of as well. It's not something that we are dictating has to happen in the first six months. And so we want to be everybody involved in this process and love Christ fellowship and love this being where we want to come and worship. And so uh, I, we've, we've all heard in the last few months that people are seeing God working here. Something's happening in Christ fellowship. Something's happening within these walls. Uh, we're being blessed with with, with new, uh, new attenders, some working toward membership. We got more, more numbers here. Um, we couldn't be more happy for that. We would love to be able to have these pews or chairs or maybe in the future full. Uh, Dave doing five services on a Sunday, I think would be great. <laughs> uh, but we know we can, we can do that, and uh, there's a lot of opportunity in this corner of the county, and we want to be ready for that. We want to make this a place where the outside wants to be coming inside. Um, and, and so uh, to be able to look at how to finance that is not something that is done quickly. It's not something we can just snap our fingers and make happen. And so there's nothing that we are, we, as we move into 2020, Trust us, we're moving. We are acting, we're being men of action. Uh, and, 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 but there are things that take time. When you're, whenever you're talking about the kind of modifications and upgrades, uh, bathrooms and 
going to bring in an ADA compliance and a lot of this, if anybody's ever brought crock pots here to the church, you realize that they may be upstairs, they may be in the gym, they may be all around the walls. You know, we may need a new electrical feed to come in here. All of those things are big dollars when you're talking of a structure this big. Uh, and that's a, that's a lot of work. And so uh, it's not always beautiful upfront stuff that can be done. There's a lot of stuff that we're doing behind the scenes that, that are that are setting the, the, the that would be setting the pace forward. So uh, it's exciting to see, uh, and, and we're excited about it. So, uh, you know, there's limitless opportunities for us in this county, uh, and we see, like you, that God is doing wonderful things here. So we're excited to, to move into 2020. Um, I think that's about all I've got. Did I cover everything that we need to cover? I think I got through my notes. I, I wrote a lot of notes on here saying, that, man, this is just wrong. I should have never put notes together because now I've got to go back and see what everybody's talked about and how do I fit, fit their stuff into mine. Uh, but uh, but it, it is fun to, to, to be there and talk about this and watch things that are coming together. We, we may not be able to move on them yet, but we're getting the pieces at least on the same table, and the puzzle's going to start coming together. So let me pray for Ken as he comes and, and, and closes the meeting for us, um, and, uh, and then we can, we can move on with the service, Father. Father, it's, uh, it's great to be able to present 2020, Lord God, and, and to see the vision and, and, and work toward that goal of... Uh, financing a year at Christ Fellowship and uh, the, the intentionality of, of improving your house, um, your ministries, Father. We, we fund the ministries and we, we continue to want to do that better. And, and so we thank you for everybody that's involved in ministry. We thank you for everybody that's been involved in the, the, the funding of everything. We th- I thank you for the hearts of the people here today. Uh, and for the hearts that you bring to us in 2020, Father, that, that there is no pulling back on asking for the money to fulfill your ministry, Lord God. And as we as we close this meeting, well, may this be a springboard for questions, and 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 may there be any uh, hint of doubt. Can we, as elders, uh, ease their mind that uh, that it isn't being shot from the hip, that we have done our due diligence. We will continue to work and do the right thing at the right time with your guidance and your blessing. We pray now for Ken as he comes. Um, give him the words and, uh, and the boldness to say what uh, he has to say, and we just thank you for the opportunity to, to watch over us as we move into the new year. Praise you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Lots of information for you guys to take in. And uh, I'm going to make an executive decision here. I'm going to hang on to my thoughts, and I'm going to give them to you at the next service during call to worship because we're running out of time here. And I want to tie this together, but I need a little more time than what we actually have. The one comment I'll make before I close, and we'll get ready for the next service with the good worship and great preaching and everything, is Christ Fellowship is about to ready to get really busy. We're a busy place right now, and the ministries are going really well. Uh, great leaderships in, in every area, uh, but it's going to get busy, and uh, we need you. Uh, we're excited about the new families that God has given us here at Christ Fellowship, and we need you guys. 
membership's important. Uh, families, uh, new, new families walking through that door is important to us. Uh, we want to get to know you better. Uh, th there's a lot here, and uh, we understand it takes it. We've been looking at it for the last three, four years, so we understand that it takes you guys time and stuff. But um, I tell you what, let's close with a word of prayer. Uh, let's get ready for the service where we're going to worship God, uh, and then we'll, I'll talk more right during the call to worship here. We'll kind of tie this all together at that point here and for that point. So why don't we have a, why don't you stand as I, I close in prayer. Father, the elders came today to present an idea and a plan that we think is right for Christ's fellowship. It is all to glorify you. It is all so we can reach families in this community and outside the community, that we can reach the unsaved. It's also about uh, each one of us getting closer to you, each one of us knowing you better, each one of us uh, to think about our own lives and the sin in our own lives and to wipe it clean because you've already saved us, you've already forgiven us, Father, in the future too. And so today's a new day, and we're excited about that, excited about the Veritas and the men that have been in, these, in our classes and been listening to the the lessons that Dave has been preaching on, the, the sin and what we need to do on a daily basis. It's exciting to see the men that are reading the Word of God every day. It's exciting that we talk about the finances here at Christ Fellowship and how, how everyone's just given, Father, because that's the right thing to do. So with all the information, I pray that uh, if there's questions, that these people will come and talk to us elders. And as we have a meeting next week here to go over the budget, that uh, if there's questions, that's a great time for that. We're here for you, Father. We're excited to worship you here in the next hour or two. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. We'll see you back in here in about... I want to invite you to open the Word of God this morning and turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. While you're making your way to Romans chapter 3... I want to make you aware of a book that was released just last week. This is a book by Dr. Owen Strand, who is the professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And the title of the book is Reenchanting Humanity, a Theology of Mankind. I know not all of you will read this, but I, I just want to make you aware of this because some of you will indeed be interested in this, especially when I tell you that um, in my estimation, this is by far one of the most important books to be published in 2019. My review of the book was posted a few days ago and I made reference to it and also said publicly that in my personal opinion that is it is one of the most important reads of 2019. Dr. Strand at one point in the book says this, if the major issue of the 16th century was that of acceptance or how can a man be forgiven by God, and the major issue of the 20th century was that of the authority of Scripture or whether the Bible is inerrant. Then the major issue of our time is anthropology, the study of man. Does the human person live in an ordered cosmos and have an appointed identity or... 
Does he make his own identity in a world without God? And then Dr. Strand makes this statement. He says, we find ourselves in a context of anthropological visions. Christianity versus neo-paganism. And that is the sentence that just stood out to me. Because I think what, what Owen has done is he has set forth for us the great battle that we are a part of. Is it the neo-pagan vision of mankind or is it the Christian vision of mankind? I want you to understand and we're going to work through this diagram But as we do that, I want you to understand that the neo-pagan vision of mankind is one of undying optimism. It's three cheers for mankind. And there are four diabolical lies that undergird the neo-pagan vision of mankind. And just to bait you a little bit out of the chute, while the neo-pagan vision of mankind is something... Many people, I would say millions of people are cheering about and cheering for. I hope you will agree with me, but by the time we make our way around the circle, that the neo-pagan vision of mankind is nothing to cheer about. Here's the first lie within that vision of neo-paganism. These come from the pen of Peter Jones. He says this, Lie number one is that all is one and one is all. If you have ever seen the motion picture, The Lion King, most of you have. You will be familiar with lie number one, that all is one and one is all. Within this component of the neo-pagan vision of mankind, there is no creator And the circle of life swallows up God. The circle of life gobbles up God. That's line number one. Line number two is that humanity is one. Here we learn that humans are essentially good. That humans are divine. Remember, these are lies. Humans create their own reality. Human beings create their own truth. Raise your hand if you're familiar with that one. Human beings create their own truth. In Here's one that's been very interesting to me. In the political realm, you create your own truth. You create your own reality. But it's also in the religious realm or the philosophical realm, the theological realm. We create our own realities. That is a lie. Every truth within this lie then must be accepted or tolerated. That's really post-modernity 101. Every, every assertion must be accepted and tolerated. And in small, 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 little, teeny, teeny, tiny letters, accept the Christian faith. Are you familiar with that one? Tolerate everyone and anything except those Bible-believing Christians. That is to be utterly rejected. Lie number three, all religions are one. Dr. Jones says, if you believe in this oneness, you must throw away rationality. For mystical union is an irrational affair. If you believe in this oneness, you must throw off doctrine. 
Now, pagans are doing this. Unbelievers are doing this. But it is a great shock to me when I see believers doing this. They cast aside the realm of the theological in favor of something that works. This is the curse of pragmatism on the contemporary church. Finally, lie number four, which will need some explanation. That is the the lie which is referred to as the problem of amnesia. There is a worldview that is referred to by Dr. Jones as monism. Monism is a worldview that hates distinction makers because they break the unity of the circle, he says. He goes on to say that making distinctions has numbed us, they maintain, into a spiritual state of forgetfulness. We forget who we really are. We are really divine. We are really good. So the lie goes. And so you think about a couple of areas. First, the area of authority and submission. You talk about authority and submission in the marketplace of ideas. Those are fighting words, right? I don't submit to no one. You will hear in the marketplace of ideas. And what is alarming to me is I hear professing Christians saying similar things. This morning, as I addressed many of you in our our vision summit together, I shared about how we are moving in this this God-centered direction at Christ Fellowship with the establishment of a council of elders and a board of deacons. And I can tell you that I had a gentleman come to me several years ago after I spoke, after I preached a really a, a very strong message on authority and submission when it comes to an elder-led church government. And this gentleman said to me, how dare you tell us that we need to submit to your authority? How dare you? As he shaked his fin- shook his finger in my face, and all I could think of was Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13, that calls the people of God to submit to local church elders. You think about sin and holiness. Dr. Jones says the very word sin has gone out of style. Even some Christian groups have begun to cringe when they find themselves using it. Measuring behavior against God's objective standards are too constraining. We will have a better chance at peace if we make up our own less rigid standards. As long as everyone is is happy about an action, it can't be wrong. And then Peter Jones says this. He tells us the ultimate goal of paganism. And I would encourage you to, to remember this, to highlight this. If you forget everything else, remember that the ultimate aim, the ultimate objective of paganism is the subversion of God's truth. It is the subversion of God's truth. Well, as you know by now, Paul the Apostle, he will not be duped into believing any of these lies. These are lies that are not only a part of the warp and the woof of contemporary culture, but they were lies that Paul dealt with in his culture 2,000 years ago. And so what he does is he tells the truth about the human condition. He has already painted this grim portrait of the human condition in his letter to the Romans. In Romans 2, 1 to 29, he referred to the Jews and also the Greeks in Romans 1, 18 to 32. And he said, both groups are under the wrath of God. Both the Jews and both the Gentiles or the Greeks are under the wrath of God and will stand 
accountable before a holy God. How's that for a popular message? It was not popular in the first century, and it is not popular in our day either. In Romans 3, he continues to add paint, if you will, to this devastating portrait that includes not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And so the title of the message this morning is quite simply a portrait of destruction. I want to have you stand to your feet as we read together this lengthy section of scripture beginning in Romans 3 verse 9 and I will read through verse 20. This is God's word. What then verse 9 says are we Jews any better off? No not at all for we have already charged that All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray together. Lord, what a devastating portrait of the human condition apart from grace. Lord, my simple prayer this morning is that we would see it, that we we, we would accept it, that we would understand it. For those who are followers of Christ, may they recognize the, the great deliverance that has taken place. That those of us who are Christians would, would recall our former position before we were rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who are not yet Christians, may they see this horrible portrait of sin. May they see that it's not just about their neighbor, it is about them. May they gaze into the mirror of the law of God and may they see where they stand before you, the holy God of the universe. And may it draw them to the place where they realize that their only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, would you come and and show your kindness to us today? Would you remind us of your grace and your goodness? And may we be uh, encouraged in the Christian faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So Romans chapter 3, verse 9, the first thing Paul does is to do a bit of review. He he reiterates what he has already elaborated on in the book of Romans. Once again, verse 9, what then, question mark, are we Jews, that includes himself, are we any better off? The answer is no, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
Here's the, the, the overriding question that I want to just hang over you this morning and allow the word of God to respond with two main headings. And those two main headings will be the answer to this question. So here's the question. What then is the fate of creatures apart from grace? What is the fate? What is the reality of creatures Apart from grace. The first heading we can see in verses 10 to 18. And the first answer is this. Is that sinners who have not yet received the grace of God. Are doomed under sin. They are doomed under sin. And I like to look at verses 10 to 18. And consider, consider this like an attorney would consider this. And I would like to call verses 10 to 18, Exhibit A. Exhibit A. We'll place all of these pieces of evidence under Exhibit A and see within Exhibit A 13, count them, 13 lines of evidence that indict, that utterly condemn all creatures apart from grace. You can see how this runs contrary to the the neo-pagan vision of mankind. You see, neo-pagan anthropology is only optimistic. We are good people. In fact, we are divine. So says the neo-pagan vision of mankind. Nothing, my friends, could be further from the truth. All creatures apart from grace are doomed under sin. Now, as we look at exhibit A, I want to break exhibit A, and you can see this reflected in your notes. I want to break it up into two subcategories. And the first is that apart from grace, we have a corrupted disposition. That is, my inclinations, my desires, my character, all the things that motivate A sinner apart from grace, that includes his or her corrupted disposition. Look at the first one in verse 10. Paul says, none. How many does that include? It's pretty all-inclusive. None, there are no exceptions. None is righteous, no, not one. In fact, I believe that Paul adds no, not one, so there is no confusion. He says, none are righteous, no, not one. That is to say, all are morally and spiritually bankrupt. Every sinner apart from Jesus, every sinner apart from grace is morally and spiritually bankrupt. Remember that the next time you say this about your unbelieving friend, family, spouse, neighbor, uncle, grandpa, grandma. Oh, he or she, at the very root of it, they're good people. Here's what the Bible says about a sinner apart from grace. They are morally and spiritually bankrupt. How much money does a bankrupt person have? Zero. Zero. The word righteous here comes from a Greek term that means a person who is just or upright and measures up according to God's holy standard. You ask this question, if you are here this morning, and there are some of you here this morning that are not yet Christians, and I'm an optimist. 
You're not yet Christians. And my goal is that by the end of the message, you will say, I need grace. I need to be forgiven. I need Jesus. If you're not yet a Christian, where do you stand before a holy God? Are you righteous? How do you measure up in accordance with God's holy standards? And the Bible says it plainly. You got nothing. You got nothing. All are morally and spiritually bankrupt. Isaiah chapter 64, a verse that many of you are very familiar with, says this about the condition of mankind. We have all become like one who is unclean. And our righteous deeds, our quote-unquote righteous deeds, are like a polluted garment because we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. We are morally and spiritually bankrupt. That's the first of 13 pieces of evidence. Look at the second piece of evidence. Romans chapter 3, verse 11. Paul says, no one understands. I think I mentioned last week that one of the most devastating things that you can say to a man. I'm not sure about a woman, but I think it holds true for a woman as well. But you tell a man, hey, buddy, you're just ignorant. Right? Call me just about anything. But call me ignorant. Oh, boy. That will get a guy wound up to say that they're ignorant. But that's exactly what Paul says here. He says, no one understands. The word understand comes from a Greek term that means to have the capacity to understand spiritual truth. And so those who are doomed under sin are spiritually incapacitated. And here's what it means, and this is important. It doesn't mean that unconverted people aren't smart. That's that's not what it's referring to. Every unconverted person I've ever known knows that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Every unconverted person I've ever known knows that 3 plus 3 equals 6 and that, that, that 12 times 12, we're getting harder now, equals 144. We all know that. This is not intellectual inability. This is spiritual intellectual inability. Let me illustrate it this way. We have people in the front row. In fact, I'm not going to pick on the front row. We have some children who have gone to children's church. We have Six-year-old children who are converted, who can understand what I'm saying this morning more than a 60-year-old unconverted man. Isn't that something? Because the six-year-old just knows, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I love Jesus. I bank on the, the, the cross work of Jesus. I don't want to go to hell. I believe the word of God. Doesn't that just settle it? It just sums it up. The simple, as Chris preached several weeks ago, the childlike faith that God expects. But you can be 40, 50, 60, 70, be unconverted and say, none of that makes any sense. None of it makes any sense. I remember talking to an unconverted young man in his 40s as the gospel was presented. And he said this, I'll never forget it. He put his hands on his waist and he said, if only it were that simple. That you just need to believe Jesus and trust in Jesus and turn from your sin. And I said, it's that simple. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And you know what my friend was thinking? There's got to be something I need to do. Like, who do I write the check out to? What do I do? Where do I go? Don't I go on a pilgrimage? No! Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. He didn't get it. 
Those who have not yet received grace are spiritually incapacitated. Paul says it like this. The natural person, that is the unconverted person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Look at the third piece of evidence Paul gives also in Romans 3.11. He says, no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. That is all are spiritually wayward and lost. That word seeks simply means to, to search out, to diligently seek for. And this is not to suggest that unconverted people don't search or seek out anything. Rather, they seek out all kinds of things. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things. The only thing they're not seeking, Paul says, is the living God. They may seek out the benefits of God. They might seek seek, uh, the, the retirement plan that God might offer. They might seek out the good gifts of God, but they do not seek for God himself. Number four, Romans 3.12, Paul says, all have turned aside. That is to say, all are on the fast track to hell. And may I be so bold to say this, is this is the message that, that our culture needs to hear. This is the message Christ fellowship needs to hear. Many of you, and I would argue most of you, are Christians. But you still need to hear that people are on the fast track to hell. Why? Because when I look at myself, who? I remember something that before I became a Christian in 1974, I was on the fast track to hell. And I I need to remember, oh, wow, I need to to be jolted out of my slumbers that before grace, before Jesus came crashing into my life, I was on the fast track to hell. Paul says, all have turned aside that Phrase turned aside means to, to change your orientation, to change your direction, to leave a set course. Here's what's interesting. When every baby is born, when that, when that newborn breathes his or her first breath, mom and dad who are Christians know what the reason for his or her life is for. That is to glorify the living God. Every child that is born is born to glorify the living God. But the set course of every creature is this. We have all gone astray, Isaiah says. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look also at verse 12. Paul says, they have become, it doesn't get any better, by the way. They have become together worthless. That is, they are all morally and spiritually corrupt. The phrase worthless means to be depraved, to be damaged goods. We're all morally and spiritually corrupt. Also in verse 12, Paul says, no one does good, not even one. And the phrase good means benevolence or kindness. Here we learn that all are incapable. This is very important. We are capable of doing good to the glory of God. That is not to suggest that unconverted people can't do good. They can do good things. And they do good things all the time. But they don't do good things to the glory of God. 
I want to have you hold your finger in Romans chapter 3 and go to Psalm 14. Because in Psalm chapter 14, we see exactly where the Apostle Paul is drawing his vision of anthropology. You remember Dr. Strand's book. In Psalm chapter 14, read with me verses 1 to 3. The psalmist says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. So really what Paul's doing is he's drawing from this rich mine of theology from Psalm chapter 14. And we learn in very clear terms that all people apart from grace have a corrupt disposition. But there's something else that is corrupt. And this is the second subcategory. And that is that apart from grace, we have corrupted faculties. Not only a a corrupted disposition, but corrupted faculties. Romans 3.13. Again, it gets worse. Paul says, their throat is an open grave. Or all are inclined to wicked speech. Now, some might not be inclined to say the word. Do you remember that before you were converted? You consider yourself a, a, a good boy or a good girl. And you would, your parents taught you right. You would never utter forth that word. But deep in your heart, you think about what that person did to you. And you're seething. You're seething with wickedness. That's what Paul's referring to. All are inclined to wicked speech. Martin Luther says, They abhor the message of the cross. And they desire to hear only What flatters their vanity. Why is it that the the largest churches in America reject this doctrine? It's because people abhor the message of the cross and they desire to hear only what flatters their vanity. Also in Romans 3.13, Paul says they use their tongues to what? To deceive That is, we are all inclined to deception. We are all inclined to deceit. The psalmist says in Psalm 52 too, Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You know, have you ever been to a movie? Of course you have. And you go to a movie and it's like Lord of the Rings, right? And you sit through about two hours and 15 minutes and you you lean over to your, your spouse or your girlfriend or your buddy and you're like... Hey, uh, I just got to step out. I got to take a break. Like, I'm exhausted. You ever been there? There's a reason for the intermission, right? That you just imposed on yourself. Sometimes when you walk through a passage like this, you're just like, I just want to say, let's just take five minutes. Let's just take a break, right? I mean, this, this this is amazing, amazing theological infrastructure that the apostle paul helps us understand here let's press forward number nine romans 3 verse 13 once again he says the venom of asps is under their lips that is all are inclined to spew poisonous words and i would turn your attention don't need to turn there but james chapter 3 says it like this and it warns us of the power of the tongue the tongue is 
a small member. In other words, it's this little teeny piece of skin that hangs between our lips, right? Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And so we see that James uh, agrees with the psalmist and James agrees with the apostle Paul. That is scripture agrees with scripture. Romans 3.14, following along through this passage, Paul says that their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. That is, all are inclined to hurtful words. That word curses means to inflict injury or destruction on another person. Number 11, verses 15 and 16, Paul says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. So number 11, their, their feet are swift to shed blood. And once again, you may say, I remember when I was an unconverted person, I would never, I would never hurt a flea. I, I, I would never lay my hand on another person for even hurting me. I know that's wrong. But deep down in your heart, doesn't Jesus say that's where the sin resides in your heart? That's what Paul's referring to. Number 12. Romans 3.17, and the way of peace they have not known. That is to say, all are on a war path with God. Jonathan Edwards said in the 18th century that unconverted man would kill God given the opportunity. Every unconverted man is like a poisonous snake spitting poison in the direction of a thrice holy God. That word peace in Romans 3.17 means harmonious relations and freedom from disputes. But we're reminded of this. Sinful people are at war with God. There, there is this continual friction. There's this enmity with the God of the universe. And then finally, verse 18 says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The word fear, we're all familiar with the Greek term here. It's, it's the Greek term phobos. How many of you have any kind of phobos? You have a phobia. Does anyone have any phobias? Like the fear of quartered, like tight places. That's me, right? The fear of heights. That's me too. I have issues, right? None of you have any fears of anything. You have like fears of spiders, arachnophobia. You have fear of meeting new people. You have fear of you fill in the blank. Here the word fear means to reverence the Lord. Psalm 111 verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Deuteronomy chapter 10. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you those great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You begin to put this together. If I don't fear God, I can't possibly be a person committed to wisdom. 
So these are the 13 lines of evidence that Paul uses to show his readers that apart from grace, they're all doomed under sin. They're all doomed under under sin. No one is excluded. We are not only doomed under sin, we are, and here is the second heading which answers our question. We are destined for destruction under the law. Notice with me in verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's interesting how Paul begins here. Look at verse 19. He says, there is something we know. A lot of you like to be in the know. I love to be in the know. I love to have the answer before someone asks me the question. Have you ever been there? Or uh, my, my family over Thanksgiving, we, we played games. We played Settlers of Catan and I can't even remember what else we played. But whenever you play games, there's always like, what about this? And what about that? Or who sang this song? Who sang that song? There used to be a day when you had to draw from your deep intellectual resources, right? And you remembered. But now, what do you do? Oh, I'll Google it. Right? That's the answer. Right? And so we all like to be in the know. Paul says here that there is something we need to know. The word means to have a knowledge about something which is acquired through deep reflection, understanding, and thinking. And here's what we know. All people are under the what? We're under the law. All people are instructed by the law. That is, it tells the truth. The law tells the truth about the human condition. And here's what we learn. Once again, we're doomed under sin apart from grace. We are destined for destruction under the law. Now, Paul clarifies what he's talking about here to be a person who is destined for destruction. There's two things he says. The first is in verse 19. The second is also in verse 19. First, he says, so that every mouth may be stopped. That word stopped is worth highlighting. Every mouth may be stopped. That is there is no recourse. There is no recourse. Here, here's what stop means. It, means. it means to cease, to come to an end. But here's my favorite definition for stopped. If anyone is asleep, it's time to wake up. That's what it means. Stopped. It means to slam the door. You say, what does that mean? Well, go back to Romans chapter 3 verse 19. So that every mouth may be stopped. It seems that, in my mind, every creature has something to say at this point. And there are some people in this congregation who, you're ready to respond. You're ready to respond by saying, wait a minute, pastor. I am a, help me. I'm a good person. You just gave 13 pieces of evidence. Paul says this is what describes an unconverted life and lifestyle. I got to respond to that. I am a good person. I do good things. I go to church. I put money in the offering. 
I'm a philanthropist. I'm a businesswoman. I'm a businessman. I do good things. And here is Paul's response. Every mouth will be stopped. When we stand at the heavenly tribunal, here's what will happen. All those excuses will vanish in a puff of smoke. Paul says every door will be closed. None of our words will be sufficient. None of our works can convince a holy God to accept us. Why? There is no recourse. Isn't it amazing how Paul packs all this in? How, how God uses biblical writers to pack all this information into these verses? Because there's another clarifying comment in verse 19. Not only is there no recourse for those who are destined for destruction, he says, additionally, there are no second chances. Look at it in verse 19. We know that the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world, in this context, that means every Jew, every Gentile, no exclusions. Everyone will be held accountable to God. A little word translated accountable means to be brought to trial. Some of you have accountability partners. You sit down before your accountability partner and you you tell them how you've been doing. It means to be brought to trial, to be liable to judgment. There's four things I see about accountability here. I want you to, to jot down if you would be so kind. First of all, the accountability here is comprehensive. Why? Because it includes the whole world. The whole world is held accountable to God. Number two, the accountability is non-negotiable. Those of you with small children, you, you see this all the time. It's like it's, it, it, kids are hardwired, most of them at least, to be like this. You say, Johnny, no cookies before dinner. No cookies before dinner. And what does Johnny do invariably? Or Susie. Well, can I have these two? Johnny, Susie, I told you no cookies before dinner. Well... Could I have just one? Johnny, I told you no cookies. Susie, I told you no cookies. Well, could I cut one in half and have half a cookie? I said no cookies, right? This is ultimate accountability. This accountability before God. And by the way, what do we do oftentimes as parents? I know I do. All right. Like dinner's for another hour. You can have half a cookie, right? You can have a cookie. You can have a Pop-Tart. You compromise. You like Pop-Tarts, huh? They're so good. This accountability is non-negotiable now that you're all hungry. This accountability is also final. On the day of judgment, it is final. No negotiations. It is final. And here's the ultimate thing to remember. That is not on the screen or in your notes. This accountability is not to a governor. It's not to a president. It's not to a legislator. It's not to your mom. It's not to your dad. It's not to your teacher or a police officer. It's not even to your probation officer. It is before God. We are accountable before God. And so I ask, why 
Is there no recourse? Why are there no second chances? Verse 20 delivers an answer, and it is a devastating blow. Read it with me. For, which tells us it's the answer to the question, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. How does a person stand in the presence of a holy God? Well, this is not only the perennial question of the Protestant Reformation, it is the question for the ages. And the answer is there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to merit favor in the eyes of a holy God. It is only through Christ and Christ alone that we stand in the presence of a holy God. Now, I want to take a minute as we close, and I want to make this super, super practical. And I want to present just a a handful of worldviews and have you think practically with me. How do people approach this subject? So I want you to think with me, first of all, about the Muslim path to God. The Muslim path to God, which is actually very simple. In an Islamic worldview, sin and salvation are associated with two concepts, work and fate. Work and fate. And so the Muslim system is based on works and works alone. Do my good works outweigh the sin? Because every Muslim believes in sin. Do my good works outweigh my sin? Does it tip the balance so that I will be able to stand before Allah on the final day. This is a system that leads to eternal condemnation. Or consider the Jehovah's Witness path to God, the Watchtower Society. And this is even more cut and dried and simple. Here's the definition of salvation salvation comes as a result of fleeing into the theocratic kingdom before Armageddon. Here are the steps. For a Jehovah's Witness. And please remember this. Every time you have a Jehovah's Witness come to your door. There are three steps that that person is enabled to stand before God. Be baptized as a Jehovah's Witness in a Jehovah's Witness church. Study with Jehovah's Witnesses and witness. The reason that they are standing at your doorstep is because that is a means of their salvation. I remember two women came to our door, an older woman and a younger woman. There's always a, a mentor and a, one that's being trained. And the older woman looked at me and began to dialogue with me about Scripture. And as a, someone who loves evangelism, I shared the gospel with her. And she had this great line. I, I actually just, I was blown away. She goes, you seem to know a lot about this. How come you don't ever come to my house and share it with me? And it was like the Holy Spirit gave me this response because I was like, oh, man, that was devastating. And I said, what's your address? And guess what? She was unwilling to give me her address. So it was just a line, my friends. It was just a line. That's all it is. The Jehovah's Witness path to God is one that leads in condemnation. Or how about the Mormon path to God? It's a rigid equation. It goes like this. Faith plus baptism plus obedience to the laws and the ordinances of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, plus good works, plus membership in the Mormon church equals salvation or exaltation. 
The definition of exaltation is, quote, we can become gods like our heavenly father, close quote. Requirements for exaltation, I'm citing right from Gospel Principles, page 291 and 292. It's a Mormon document. We must be baptized and confirmed a member of the church. We must receive the Holy Ghost. We must receive the temple endowment. We must be married for all time and eternity. Joseph Smith taught, when you climb the ladder, you must begin at the bottom and ascend step step by step until you arrive at the top. So it is with the principles of the gospel. You must first begin to go until you learn the principles of exaltation. This is a damning worldview like the Muslim worldview and like the Jehovah's Witness worldview. But here's my favorite, and it affects everyone in this sanctuary. The American path to God. The American path to God. And it's very simple. It goes like this. Believe in God. Be a good person. Go to church. If you do those, those three things, you are a good person, and you will certainly go to heaven. That's the American gospel that is preached in so many churches. This is one of the reasons I wrote this little book, The White Flag, to show the various worldviews that are plaguing the church. And one of those worldviews, and this is a little technical, I apologize up front, it's a, a worldview that Christian Smith actually coined the phrase MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism. How's that for a mouthful? Moralistic therapeutic deism. You say, what is that? Here's the definition of deism in this worldview. Smith says, basically the message is that God is nice and we are nice. And so the rest of us should all be nice. The moralistic therapeutic deism model essentially declares that God's love gobbles up his justice and holiness. Therefore, the good news offered here eliminates any need for the actual story recorded in the Gospels. If God's love so easily ignores his justice, holiness, and righteousness, then Christ's death on the cross seems like a cruel waste, close quote. I respond. The primary way that moralistic therapeutic deism makes its way into the church is when people of God embrace the erroneous notion that man is basically good. Does that sound familiar? This is the neo-pagan vision of man. Here lies the touchstone of secular psychology and anthropology. The implications of this position are remarkable indeed. If this premise is true, there is no need for a savior, no need for a cross, no need for salvation. Such a view has the devastating consequences for the Christian life and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the common thread in Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormon church, and the American Gospel, the common thread is works, good works. And Paul warns us in Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You see, the law never justifies the law reveals that i'm a sinner and that's exactly what this passage in romans 3 9 to 20 does it tells us this and here is the truth point 
or that all creatures are doomed under sin and destined for destruction. You remember paganism's ultimate goal, the subversion of God's truth? Well, God's word has a totally different perspective on this, and that is that all creatures apart from grace are doomed under sin and they're destined for destruction. This is what we refer to as the, the portrait of destruction. And may I just say, this is not a portrait I want to hang in my living room. This is an ugly, vicious, gruesome portrait. But it's the portrait of my life before I trusted Christ in 1974. And it's the portrait of your life before you trusted Christ whenever you became a Christian. Let me close. This might be the longest conclusion ever. Last week I finished preaching and I sat down and Jereen said to me, Honey, look at the clock. I was like, Ooh, man, that's the shortest sermon I've ever preached. And I said, Well, get ready for next week. Each of us have somewhat of a different routine in the morning, but there's one thing that remains constant. It's actually a little weird. You get up. Jump out of bed, you wander into the bathroom, and what does every red-blooded American do? You do this. <sighs> What's that person doing? Looking in the mirror. We all look in the mirror. Some of us kind of do this with our hair. I haven't done that for 15 years. <laughs> you take care of the blemishes on your face. You look at your teeth, use some floss, you get ready for the day. But we all look in the mirror. And I think a lot of things happen in front of the mirror. We evaluate, we critique. On our better days, we might smile. But the Word of God serves as a sort of a mirror. And I believe the mirror has, has two purposes. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you look in the mirror, and what do you see? You don't see what we studied today. You don't see all of these sinful qualities because that does not describe you anymore because you have been redeemed. You have been reconciled. You have been forgiven. You are seated in the heavenlies. And so my encouragement to you is this. When you look in the mirror theologically, remember that you are a child of God. That you are deeply loved by God. That you are in the family of God. That you are a participant in the kingdom of God. This mirror tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 2, 24 and 25. That Jesus bore our sin in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Amen? For you were strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And so here is the encouragement for believers today. Your life is no longer a portrait of destruction. You are a beautiful piece of art in the eyes of a holy God. You are the object of God's mercy and the God of the universe. And I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this to you. But the first time I ever read Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17 came as a result of listening to a Stephen Curtis Chapman song. 
where he says this, that God rejoices over Rick. God rejoices over Leona. Can you imagine? God rejoices over Jason and Tanya. Because when you look in that mirror, it's no longer the portrait of destruction. You are a wonderful piece of art. And isn't that what Ephesians chapter 2 says? That you are created for God's workmanship. For good works all to the glory of God. But the word of God is, a, is another kind of a mirror. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian. The word of God is a mirror to those who are perishing. If you are not yet a follower of Christ. The word of God reveals who you truly are at the deepest level. It tells you that you are doomed under sin. It tells you that you, that you are destined for destruction. When you look into this mirror. You freely acknowledge that you stand condemned by God, that you are guilty as charged. And so for a believer, when I look in the mirror, I only see me and what God created me to be. But for the unbeliever, what you you see is condemnation. You see judgment and you see the wrath of God. But God does not leave the unbeliever without hope, does he? And the message for every unbeliever this morning is that to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so now is the time to turn from your sin and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now is the time to accept the free offer of the gospel and to trust the Lord Jesus Christ so that the next time you look in the mirror, you look in the mirror and see a portrait of a boy or a girl or a man or a woman who is forgiven and set free from the power of sin and set free from the penalty of sin. May each of us leave here this morning with a clear understanding of the portrait of destruction. And my heart as your pastor is that we would all leave and be able to say that no longer describes me. For I am the bride of Christ. I am a child of God. I am a forgiven sinner so that God might receive the glory. Let's pray. Father, help us to internalize these things. Help us to remember them. My heart this morning is for those who are perishing, those who are lost. Um, This is not a, a popular message. And Lord... I I can't even count the number of people that walked out this morning. And so, Lord, I don't take personal offense at that. But I know you do because it is the truth of your word. And so I pray that if anyone has been offended, that you would grab their heart. You would draw them to yourself and that they would see the, the, the reality of where they stand before you so that they might be reconciled to a holy God, so that they might be redeemed by a loving Savior. Oh, Lord, our heart is for the people in this community. Our heart is for the nations, and our heart's desire is that people become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they are free from the power and the penalty of sin. Thank you for allowing us to participate in your redemptive program. We give you the glory. And now as we come to the table, ask that you do mighty things here in our midst. In Jesus' name.